Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Colonial Life, providing benefits to employees to help them protect their family, their finances, and their futures. High Point University, the premier life skills university, focused on preparing students for the world as it is going to be. And Sonoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. Someone once said, things are getting better and better, worse and worse, faster and faster. <laughs> I'm Chris William and welcome again to the most widely watched program on Carolina business policy and public affairs seen every week across the Carolinas for more than three decades now. And that feeling of activity and excitement also squares somewhat with this idea of people being uneasy and even a bit on edge about the economy and their professional life. And as we head into the summer, how does that square against our summer plans and our fun? Well, we'll try to unpack that and we will start this week's discussion with our panel that can help us understand that better right now. Gratefully acknowledging support by Martin Marietta, a leading provider of natural resource-based building materials, providing the foundation upon which our communities improve and grow. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, health care, rural churches, and children's services. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, Brent Christensen from the Greensboro Chamber of Commerce, Dr. Joseph Von Nessen from the Moore School of Business, University of South Carolina, and Laura Ulrich from the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. Welcome again to our program. Uh, good to have you back in the studio, Joey. Laura, we've had you virtual, yeah. but not really here, so welcome. Right, thanks. You are really here, right? Yes, this is not here. a 3D image. <laughs> I'm here, I'm here. And Brent, welcome from Greensboro. Good to have thank you all you. here. Thank you. Uh, you get the first pitch, Dr. Ulrich. Um, so talking to an economist, somebody said, well, the eyes have it, and that means inflation and interest rates. Surprise, surprise. What do you think, it, what, is, what is going on? I mean, what is the sense that everyone is so anxious about rising rates? We knew it was coming, so right. why is it driving our dialogue right now? Well, first of all, I think we just haven't had rates increasing for a while, right? And, and really, if you think about it historically, um, rates have been very low for a very long time at, the, at this point, really since the, the last, since the Great Recession, right? So I think part of it is just kind of our cultural norm now. Um, but with inflation, you know, inflation is something that when, when we have inflation, we're gonna hear a lot about it because it does, people notice it pretty, pretty quickly, right? They notice if all of a sudden their grocery grocery store bill is higher or if it costs more to fill up the pump. And, and um, right now we're seeing energy costs so high, food costs going up. And so it's something that people are gonna kind of naturally become uneasy with. Plus you have to realize and think about, we have several generations of folks who've never seen inflation this high. And so mm -hmm. this is a new thing for a lot of adults now too in the U.S. So um, I think it's clear from the action the Federal Reserve took this, the Federal Open Markets Committee took this week and, and the actions at their last meeting that they're, they're moving forward pretty aggressively to address it. But I'm not surprised that, that it has people mm -hmm. feeling uneasy. 
Joey, what's your take as the other economist, uh, quote unquote, formal economist on the panel? Well, I think two things. Number one, the economy right now is strong at the national level and in the Carolinas. And we certainly see that in South Carolina, uh, where I am in, in Columbia. We see most economic metrics that have either mostly or fully recovered from the pandemic related losses from February to April of 2020. So that's where we are now. And as we move forward, the Fed does have some wiggle room, I think, to raise rates without necessarily causing a, a recession. But they're walking a, a fine line. And the way you can see that is if you look at the job openings rate right now, which is at an all-time high, everyone is hiring. And if there is a downturn, first, employers are going to basically take the help wanted signs out of the window before they lay workers off. So the difference between where our job openings rate is today versus where it normally would be with 3.5% unemployment, which is where things stand today, that's the wiggle room that the Fed has to raise rates before we begin to see layoffs and a more significant recession period. Uh, Brent, you're you're an economic development professional. I mean, you know something about the things we're talking about. Do you get the sense that we are hitting some type of plateau before we go up again? Or is there some anxiety that, you know, this is pre-recession? Uh, well, first of all, I am the least educated um, panelist, so thank you for identifying me as that. Um, but, uh, I, you know, in terms of economic development activity, there's there has been no slowdown at this point. Um, and, you know, the enemy of that is really when we start to have a lot of unknowns in the in the in the world. Like and, what? And any sort of any sort of, uh, you know, in terms of where am I going to get my employees? Um, what are energy costs going to be? Supply chain issues have been a big issue um, going forward. So we're seeing a lot of big projects um, in both North and South Carolina, um, mm -hmm. but they continue to move. As a matter of fact, on my way here, I got a call from a consultant saying, can you find us another mega site? Because we think we've got another project coming down the pike. So it hasn't really ratcheted anything back in terms of economic development, but you can see some of those limiting factors perhaps coming down the pike in supply chain and labor force uh, and those sort of items. Yeah. I remind people of this all the time because I'm, I'm the regional economist for North and South Carolina and I often think about what would my job be like right now if I was the regional economist for Illinois or right. California right. even, right? I mean, the Carolinas, as Joey mentioned too, it's, it's a great place to be for many reasons, right? Um, and we've always had a high quality of life, lower cost of living, mm -hmm. even with the way housing prices and land prices have gone up, that's still the case, right? If, if companies are comparing the Carolinas to a lot of other parts of the country, it's still a good place to be from a financial point of view and from a, a point of view of finding mm -hmm. em employment. And so um, I, I, I find myself frequently saying to people, you know, we have to remember that we're in a great part of the country right now. Things might be, if you talk, talk to an economic developer in some other parts of the country, mm -hmm. you might get a, a slightly that's, different that's, story. That's a fair story. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're going to hear all economic developers, though, talk about the labor force right. um, yeah, for issues, sure. yeah. all of them. If anybody tells you they've got a great labor force <laughs> to sell right now, um, they're lying to you. You know, Brent, we've been talking about it on this on this program for years, and it, it, and it while it, it's become, some will call it a crisis, but is it really? Because if everyone has the same problem, it's just an issue to solve, but it's a fairly level playing field. So right. uh, I get it. Uh, Joey, as you said, there are a lot of help wanted signs out there still, but there's always a lot of help wanted signs. So does that is that really a headline anymore? Well, I think it is from a business perspective because businesses need to realize this is a long-term challenge that they're going to face and they're going to have to adjust. The way I think about it is if you look at the baby boomers who are now retiring, they are they were born over a long period of time, basically 20 years, and they turned 65 
roughly uh, between 2010 and 2030. That's the that's the projection. And so what we saw was in 2010, rather than the first baby boomers retiring in a steady fashion because of the 2008 financial crisis, many of them saw their 401ks diminish significantly for a number of years, so they had to keep working. And then we moved to 2020, and a lot of people, a lot of baby boomers are saying, uh, the stock market is doing well, and I'm concerned about getting sick, and I'm now going to retire. So this 20-year period of baby boomer retirements was basically compressed into a 10-year period or less, and so we're faced with this major uh, this major change in a very short period of time that is likely to last going forward. And I think businesses need to be prepared to adjust and just to realize this is not a COVID-related problem only. Yeah, I agree, I agree with that a thousand percent. And the um, Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis has done an estimate that there were 2.6 million extra baby boomer retirements mm -hmm. um, because of what Joey's mentioned. And so if you look at the at the employment numbers and labor force participation numbers, it really, where you see the large differences is in that over age 65 group. Mm -hmm. um, and so that shifts the entire labor force, right? You have people moving into different positions and there's there's gaps across the, the labor force. Now, a lot of times we notice the help wanted signs in leisure and hospitality businesses and businesses we might frequent um, day in and day out physically, but we don't think as much about the you know, the internal mm -hmm. job shortages, labor shortages there might be in accounting and finance departments at the same corporations that are having shortages of, of cashiers, right? But we are seeing that kind of across the board. There, there are big labor issues. And to Joey's point, this is a long-term demographic shift. Mm -hmm. And so there just simply aren't as many people to replace the, the baby boomers. But again, even that, and Brent coming to yeah. you, that hasn't stopped North Carolina it from is not. posting. It is not. Or, or South Carolina. Or South but Carolina. my point is, so it, again, is this a headline? Or is this just something that's going to be one of those um, those, ende those endemic items that we just have to live with? And it's we'll something find that we every, every economic development organization is going to have to solve for mm -hmm. in, in any way that they shape or form that they can. It's really a, kind of two sides of the same coin. When we talk about the workforce, you're going to have to solve it by attracting more folks into your community that have the skills and the credentials that are going to be needed to fill those jobs. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to have to train the folks that are already in your community to have those skills and have those credentials. And, and it's gonna have to be an all of the above strategy for, uh, for increasing your labor force and increasing those skills. And the communities and the states that do that the best will be the big winners in economic development. Let, in me, let me take a sidebar with you just sure. a second here and put you on the spot just sure. for a second. How does, how does Greensboro, how does the triad, not the triangle of course, and people right. will know the difference, become competitive with already is, is substantial the Charlotte region, the Triangle, right. the Charleston region, the mountains, Greenville, Spartanburg. How do you start, and this is not the right way to say it, Brent, but, but how do you start to get your traction again? Not that you're not competitive, but right. how do you get to that point where you start running neck and neck with those regions? Yeah, and I, and I think it's already started. It, it took a little <laughs> while. Um, you know, the age old saying that uh, when opportunity comes along, it's too late to prepare. We've been preparing for years. <laughs> and now are seeing the successes for that. And, and a lot of that is, again, going back to that labor force, making sure that our college students, because we have a strong number of college students in the triad, we don't necessarily get the full credit for that because we've got some neighbors on either side that have um, the, the, uh, the reputation for being college towns. Um, it's keeping more of those college students in Greensboro and in the triad at, as they graduate and it's really attracting folks. We're, we're a great location in North Carolina with a great quality of life, in many cases a lower cost of living than, than others. Mm -hmm. And so when I hear 
some of my younger friends and millennials, and including my son, who's 24 years old, say, well, I'll never be able to afford a house now um, with the way housing prices have gone. Well, in Greensboro and Winston-Salem and High Point and, and the Triad, you can mm -hmm. afford a house. You can have that high quality of life that we so enjoy in the Carolinas at an affordable rate. Well, let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. Housing, affordable housing, the real asset prices. Mm -hmm. When do they stop? I, or I, when do they slow down? I think we're already seeing it slow down yeah. um, because part of that is because mortgage rates are going up and so it's becoming more expensive per per dollar borrowed, right, to, to purchase a house. So I think we're already seeing it slow down. I think it's hard to know when it stops in places like Greenville, South Carolina, or Charlotte, or Raleigh, because as, as we mentioned before, that differential between what it costs to live and or operate a business in some other cities and, and what it costs to buy a house here or operate a business here, it's still, there's still a gap, right? So that gap has narrowed some, but I think it's hard to know when, when they stop going up, but I do think we're starting to see it level out a bit. And the other side of the coin there is, is inventory as well, which mm -hmm. has been so low mm -hmm. in, in many markets, and Charleston is the, the best example there. So that's been putting pressure on prices mm -hmm. as well, in addition to the demand side. So even, the, even if demand begins to come back or come back down, which we are seeing already yeah. this year, uh, supply levels are still low, inventory levels are low, and the supply chain shortages are exacerbating that challenge too. So what's what's the domino to fall, Joey? If, if, if inventory for houses stay tight, what's the next domino to fall? What gives? Well, I think it's it's looking at the pace of interest rates, uh, what pace they, they rise at and how that impacts mortgage interest rates. Uh, because I think construction this year, that's one of the challenges that they will face. They are more likely to face the, the brunt of these interest rate hikes, at least mm -hmm. early on, relative to other sectors, uh, just because of the rise mm -hmm. in rates that we're seeing and the impact on affordability, which has already taken a hit because prices have been appreciating so rapidly. So affordable houses and affordable housing is part of the equation in any uh, any urban core. Mm -hmm. Brent, how do you That's make debate. sure housing and affordable housing stay part of that when these 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 runaway real asset prices? And how do you make sure it's not it's just a single transaction? Affordable housing in place, the first person that owns that gets to sell it at a much higher price. Right. What goes on with that? Well, and, I, and that's all part of the community formula, right, for, for economic development. And if we're gonna attract more people to our community, that's just gonna exacerbate um, a housing cost. Exactly. Right, so you've gotta make sure that your zoning um, and, and your long range planning documents and everything uh, is working on a government basis to make sure that builders um, have the ability to, to build um, you know, houses, apartments. Uh, again, another, I hate to keep saying all of the above solution, but an all of the above uh, solution. I remember, I remember millennials said they didn't want to own houses at one point, right? And all of a sudden <laughs> yeah, they've grown up sure. and they do. Um, and so here we are uh, facing a, a younger generation that is now engaged and is in the housing market as well as, that has exacerbated the, the problem as well. But you've got to look, and we are in, in the triad, starting to look more at, okay, we've gotten these big wins, we've gotten the Toyota and the Boom Supersonic, and, and we're gonna to have to attract more people to the community. And that's, that means not only do we have to find more industrial properties and more commercial properties, which we've been focused on, but now we also need to be looking at more housing properties as well, and how do we make it easier for those houses to come online? 
and we and people are moving here, so we we see that the projections show that mm -hmm. that more people are going to be moving to the southeastern United States over the next 20 years than any other region of the country, which is great news for demand overall. Uh, but it gets back to uh, exacerbating or creating these housing challenges that we're talking about. So does that does the in migration? And Laura, question for you: yeah. Does the in migration bail us out for any any bad mistake or policy that we may do? Not necessarily, because it depends on who's moving in. So if we have immigration that's predominantly retirees, mm -hmm. then that's not going to help the labor force in the same way as, right. as it will if it's younger younger families. And that actually, I think, gets back to the housing issue, because a lot of times we talk about affordable housing and thinking about affordable housing, but one of the things we've been talking about a lot at the Richmond Fed is workforce housing, which is mm. families that typically, affordable housing is typically families that make under 60% of area median income. Workforce and what housing, is it generally, not to put you on the spot, but 60% of area median income is tends to be it totally depends it totally depends so if you think about um, I, you know I can't think of I don't know of the exact numbers by market okay um, but if you look at um, workforce housing which is 60% to 120% I know that that normally um, houses in that range need to be below about 250 to $300,000 um, to be affordable to be affordable and in a lot of markets there are no houses you know go on Zillow right now to Charleston in the county yeah, and look for a house yeah, that yeah. Would be very, a very hard right not, so not even in Dorchester not right. even further out no. right so no. I don't know the exact number but I do know that 250 to 300 is is what workforce housing tends to be need to be and so even even that range. So then you're looking at people, you know, everybody's making more, less than 120% of area median income are really struggling in terms of finding mm -hmm. homes they can afford. And that makes it more difficult to attract younger families. And there are some government entities that will actually incentivize mm -hmm. and help with down payments right. and, and interest buy downs and that right. sort of thing for as part of the economic development people will for people who will qual qualify for workforce housing. Okay. Yeah, but it's but it's difficult sometimes because a lot of people that make that 60 to 120, they're not used to going to the government or to That's organizations right. for help. Right, they're, they're not people that have gotten benefits from the government before, and so sometimes the take-up rates on those programs aren't as high as you would expect because they're just not used to seeking assistance. Right. There's some pride involved. They yeah. don't know where to go. They don't know where to they go. They don't expect it. They'll target them to first responders mm -hmm. so that mm -hmm. you know you, you, you have some mm -hmm. traction from okay. governmental yeah. employees because yep. of that issue. They mm -hmm. they work for the government, so they get an opportunity to engage with the government well, and those well, things. Uh, last year, not a surprise to you, and the year before. It, record amounts of liquidity from the government, printing money, right? Five trillion plus five trillion. Where is all that liquidity now? It's still out there, isn't it, Joey? And what, where is it gonna show up? Well, it, it has showed up in, in uh, disposable income mm -hmm. being at historic highs. Last year, in 2021, it was 20, uh, about 25% above uh, norms, which is just staggering to, to think about. Savings rates were high, and that was having a result. We saw a, a big boom in consumer spending and durable goods spending especially, and we've seen it track very closely as, as uh, disposable income has come back down. Savings rates have come back down as the federal stimulus has waned. Uh, we've, we've begun to see consumer spending come back down in line with that, which is one of the reasons why we anticipate this slowdown later in the year, uh, because consumer spending is falling right in line as these dollars are spent, and we don't have the, the, the dual uh, the dual sources of income, both from wages and from this federal stimulus. Yeah. It's now down to the labor market. So it gets us more in a sustainable, uh, more long-run sustainable period of growth once we see this, uh, this pullback. 
There's well, still a significant amount of money that's out there too that that you know I think a it? lot of times twenty percent. You know I think it's it's difficult to know yeah, the exact percentage, sure. but but it's you know a lot of times when we think about the stimulus, we think about stimulus checks, but then there were also things like the PPP money that went mm -hmm. to businesses, which a lot of that actually went to households, right? Because it's households mm -hmm. that that run businesses, right. um, and the child tax credit yep. prepayments that came last year. So there there really was a tremendous amount of money that 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 entered the economy and like Joey said with savings rates going up real disposable income and um, it, well disposable income in really in nominal terms increasing but many of those families have now spent down those savings so if you look at the lower income families that received that money there's not a lot of that money left but there's still a lot of money out there that that went to higher income families through maybe not through that direct stimulus check but through some of these other programs mm -hmm. that were a part of the, the stimulus package so Brent as you've heard your two bookends here talking about yeah. the, the liquidity issue how, how do you figure out how to get uh, city planners, city mothers, city fathers, and not just Greensboro, High Point, Winston-Salem, but the leadership that you interact with in North Carolina economic development circles to figure out a plan based on all of these things that it's salient and it's, it's doable and you know that you can build a plan that you can execute on besides just saying, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not being flippant about this, but North Carolina has had a bunch of short-term big wins. Right. But what about five years? What about 10 years? And are we going to go through our seed capital here with all this liquidity and try to plan that when it's not going to be spent the way it is? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and part of it is, again, looking long-term, right? So a lot of these ARPA funds yeah, that are right. still mm -hmm. in government coffers, what are we going to do to make sure that the things we're investing in with those ARPA funds are not short-term things, but long-term things? As we, as we see these economic development successes, one of the things we worry about is where's the next site, right? I mean, we're, we're running low on inventory statewide and probably in South Carolina as well, right? I mean, on my way here talking to a consultant, We've got another mega site project. Do you have another mega site in, in North Carolina? The, who is it? What's the name? <laughs> I wish I could tell you. You wouldn't tell me. Um, so, and, and quite frankly, that's usually the way it goes. Yeah, um, but we need to make sure that we're looking long term at a number of these things and not just frivolously um, spending those, those funds um, and building long term plans. In, in Greensboro, we've got a, a 2040 plan that we just went through um, that talks about transportation and housing and economic development and and prioritizing investments along along those lines it's 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 sometimes easy as we know for politicians to especially when there's money in their hands to to, sure. to give it to people and programs that might help them politically it's harder for them to stick to those long-term priorities and goals and put put that money in those buckets so Let's talk politics. I know the Fed loves. I was supposed to say you're looking at me to talk politics. Well, however, we do have a midterm election this year. We do have a lot of competing policies and politics going on. How do you think it looks next year? For whatever happens, what do you think um, monetary policy will look like? What do you think uh, public policy or, or fiscal policy mm -hmm. will look like? How do you think, what do you think happens in 2023 now? So, um, uh, you know, if you read the statement that FOMC released a couple days ago now, um, as we sit here, the it, they're pretty clear that, you know, they raise rates, a federal funds rate 50 basis points, and then it says, and they anticipate that further increases will be needed. Um, I think, you know, oftentimes we get asked the question, how many? Yeah, course, um, and I think the response to that is it depends on how inflation responds. There's some economists that think inflation has now peaked. 
Um, but that, of course, doesn't mean prices are going to go down necessarily, right? It's just the relative increase month over month might begin to decline. So, um, so I think that we it's pretty clear that the FOMC expects to raise rates um, quite a bit more, but we're still at very low federal funds rate um, his, from a historical mm -hmm. standpoint. You know, we're now at um, 0.75 to 1% range. Um, also, though, the Federal Reserve um, and the FOMC in their statement released that they're going to start bringing the balance sheet down. Um, and so that will continue in, over the next couple of years as well. They ran the balance sheet up during COVID, um, and they had already brought it down some prior to that time from, yeah. from what happened right. for the Great Recession. So, so now they're going to bring it down again, and it's to the tune of about, um, I think, $95 billion a year. So so that's going to be pretty significant But that'll well. be, uh, and not to, not to interrupt you, Laura, but with interest rates rising, the debt service on that becomes greater, doesn't it? Doesn't that become a bigger bugaboo so somewhere this in the is, mix? So this is just, they're gonna allow things to roll off that have expired. Okay. So that's the in the statement. They, they okay. have a separate statement that they released that people can look at online that explains how they're gonna do it. And what they do is when, when um, you know, when the bonds that they own reach maturity or the mortgage-backed securities reach maturity, typically they reinvest that money and so they're just not gonna reinvest mm -hmm. it. Right. We have a minute left, Joey. What do you, same question I asked Laura. I, I would say that generally speaking, we see more Americans now being affected by inflation. So it's much more of a concern now than perhaps it was last year among more people because inflation is greatly outpacing wage growth in the mm -hmm. Carolinas and across the US. So on the fiscal side, there may be more priorities towards limiting additional uh, additional stimulus of any kind, mm -hmm. fund, additional funds going out into the economy. Again, trying to pull back this, uh, this overheated economy right now and get that inflation rate back down. Do you think, do you think even in your, it's not fair to say it this way, but do you think inflation could go meaningfully higher? Is that a real concern for you? Well, we're not out of the woods yet. I think it could go up before it comes back down. I think the ideal situation is where we'd see inflation uh, a bit lower than 8.5% by the end of the year uh, without, uh, our, without the U.S. economy going into recession. Thank you. You guys are Great, great, great champs for being here, and thank you for being in the studio. Yeah, it's very great. exciting. Thank really you. Great to be here. Brent, welcome. Thank Please you. Thank you. Please come back. Thank you. Uh, anytime. Okay. Just invite me. We're we'll excited to be back. Laura, I'm glad to have you yeah. in the studio. It's great to be here. Thank Thanks. you. Good to see you. Uh, thank you for watching our program. If you have any questions or comments, you know, we always like to hear those. Any comments, carolinabusinessreview.org. Good night. Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by High Point University. Martin Marietta, Colonial Life, The Duke Endowment, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you. For more information, visit carolinabusinessreview.org.